Well, good morning. Good morning. You can be opening with me in your Bibles, if you would please, to the book of Revelation, chapter 21. We've just finished working as a church being led through the book of 1 Corinthians, and we'll be starting 2 Corinthians uh, after that. But we're going to pause here for this week and next and examine a set of verses here together. We're looking at Revelation 21, verses 1 to 8. It is amazing what Bobby mentioned, that it has been three full months since we have been able to do this together, Uh, not just to fellowship, but to open our Bibles together as the people of God. And I want to begin for just a moment by thinking about how that affects us to go for three months like this. Some things are obvious. Uh, We have missed greatly the fellowship and companionship that our family gives to us here. Those benefits are very easy to see, and they're easy to feel. Uh, There are other benefits. It's not the only benefit. In fact, that's not the main benefit that we receive from the Lord as we gather and are gathered together on a regular basis like this. The church is a sanctuary for God's people, uh, not simply from the pains and struggles of the world, although often it serves that purpose for us, but also a sanctuary from the lies of the world. We live as exiles in a foreign land as Christians. You remember John wrote in 1 John 5.19 that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And he wrote that post-resurrection and ascension of Christ. And although we are no longer of the world, we are still in the world. And the world feeds us a narrative every single day. It doesn't stop. The world suggests for us a way to view our lives and to view the world around us that is wickedly skewed because it reflects neither the sovereignty of God over all things nor the exclusivity of Jesus Christ as the only way that the effects of the fall are ever pushed back. It seems to me a a pretty clever angle of attack what we have been enduring to bring a tremendous amount of upheaval, uh, political, social emergency, everything we've been experiencing right at a time when we have been deprived of the benefits of the church gathered, sitting together like we're doing right now under the word of God preached uh, as a body in person together, able to intently submit our minds to the sort of transformation that God's word brings and that we are called to in places like Romans chapter 12. Well, we have before us this morning Revelation 21, verses 1 to 8. As I said, we'll begin to give our attention to this set of verses this morning, and we'll finish our study next week. I have come to this uh, through my own personal reading. I've been working through the book of Revelation lately in the New Testament. I was struck recently as I came to this passage uh, and, and sat and just mentally chewed on the picture that's given to us in these verses and the incredible implications of it that we're about to, uh, to read. And so my prayer is that the Lord will use this passage to bless and sharpen you as we gather back together now, uh, as it has me, and even perhaps to lead you to repentance in areas necessary, as it has me. If you are able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? 
If you're visiting with us this morning, what we're about to do is I will read the passage, and following that I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and the congregation will respond, thanks be to God. And if that's been pent up in you for about three months now, and you feel the urge to shout it out, you just go right ahead. Nobody is going to stop you. Revelation 21, verses 1 to 8, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, As for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. And Father, we bow once more now before you, thankful that we're able to do this together. And Father, we pray, we pray for our own hearing and receiving of your word. You have done a mighty work in these recent months to help us to see just how precious a gift it is that you're giving us this morning. And so I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, that you would open our ears to hear, that you would cause us to receive your word as the food that it is, that you would bless us and protect us and sanctify us and humble us as a result. We also pray for our brothers and sisters who uh, cannot be here with us this morning. And our prayer is the same, that as they hear from your word, that they would be uh, led and changed and blessed as a result. We love you, Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I was struck years ago by a prayer that I heard just before a sermon was preached. It's probably found its way into some prayers of mine that you may have heard It it went more or less exactly like this. This is what he prayed. Lord, we did not leave the cares and experiences of our lives at the door this morning when we entered. Rather, we bring them and we lay them at your feet. And we ask you, Lord, teach us from your word how to see rightly, how to feel rightly, to live rightly in light of the gospel. And that was his prayer. And it was impactful to me simply because of how 
uh, how often I, I think I had come to, th to think differently about what I was doing on a Sunday morning. My job was to take the cares of my life and to leave them out, to sort of empty my mind of them so I could come and worship God. But what that prayer teaches us is that is not what corporate worship is. We don't empty anything of us as we come. We bring all of us in order to submit it to him as we hear from him in his word. We have a lot that we're bringing before God's word this morning. What are the things that we are seeing today? I don't need to remind you of these things. Are we seeing the chaos of the world on full display right about now? Are we seeing the outcomes of the world's attempts to resolve problems between sinful individuals? What a sight we see in the political sphere with the gridlock that we're dealing with, in the social sphere with, the, with protests and riots and mistreatments of one another in many different contexts. We have seen hatred and selfishness at at multiple extremes of our COVID-19 moment. We've seen people who, uh, treat one another with, uh, with such carelessness, so many represented by the extremes and not by anything else. And when we bring Revelation 21 into these conversations, we are immediately blessed by the mind of God. And I would suggest to you that we're blessed in at least these two ways. First, we are about to be blessed here in our time as we work through these verses by seeing something about us. We're going to see the hope that the Lord has in store for us because we're going to see things about us that are not now but that will be when he is finished with us. We need to see that. Secondly, we're going to be blessed uh, in another way, but related, as we get a chance again to see the contrast between the failed promises of this world and the sure promises of God that he is holding out to us here in verses 1 to 8. Look with me, if you would. Those contrasts really begin in verse 2. Uh, look with me at verse 1 uh, to ensure that we've got our bearings straight here. This is what we read in verse 1. It said this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Now notice, first of all, given the details that we have here, that John is writing about a time that is yet to come about. He's writing about the future, the future for him and the future for us still today. That's without controversy. We've sort of come to a book that might have some controversy in places, uh, but not here, regardless of the way you understand Revelation 4 to 20. All sides involved see chapter 21 here as yet future. And that's important for us to notice. Because ever since Christ has risen and ascended into heaven, we have been living as believers in a unique period, in an in-between that we think of as an already but not yet. There are kingdom realities uh, that Christ has brought about that we already experience today, but there is a number of things about the kingdom of God that we don't yet experience. He's bringing these things into the world, uh, experienced especially in the body of Christ, but hasn't done that yet completely. We still have a foot in the present age as we sit here 
this morning. Well, that's not true about verse 1 of our text. Verse 1 sets up a vision of a time when he says the first things have passed away. He says that he sees a new heaven and a new earth because the first heaven and first earth have passed away. Now understand when he says heaven and earth here, he is not talking about the physical realm and the spiritual realm. He's using heaven and earth to describe all of the physical creation. This is not an uncommon way that the Hebrew mind used the word heaven. The Hebrew mind had three heavens. That's why Paul talks about visiting the third heaven. Their first heaven is our, is our sky. Their second heaven is, is our outer space. And their third heaven is our heaven. But when he speaks of heaven here, he's not talking about the third. He's talking about the physical realm. We can see that even in context. Uh, Revelation 20, verse 11, said this. It said, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence, earth and sky fled away. I read that out of the ESV. The word there is heaven. Earth and heaven fled away. Nothing in heaven, in the spiritual realm, the holy angels didn't flee from his presence in this time. He is speaking of of the physical. In fact, he's trying to capture in our minds, really, all that has been tainted by the fall. It has passed away. You can see that as well in his statement here about the sea being no more. The sea throughout Revelation and in the Old Testament is a picture of the the dwelling and origins of chaos and fear and death. It's the dwelling place of the dead. And Paul says the sea was no more. It's the end of an age here that he's showing to us. The end of an era. This marks the consummation, in other words, of what is to come. And knowing that he's describing a future reality means for us this morning that the things he's about to hold out to us, he's going to, you may feel very enticed this morning as we work through these passages. He is holding out to us some wonderful things, beautiful things. The fact that he's describing a future to us means that the things he's holding out to us are things that we don't yet experience right now, at least not in the way that he's holding them out to us. John is writing to post-resurrection of Christ believers, and he's giving us a vision that's meant to inspire inspiration and hope and motivation because he's describing things that we don't yet have. So let's begin to work through these, moving on to verse 2 here. Uh, And we'll look at these, especially this morning, from the first of those two uh, points of view, blessed points of view, that I, I gave to you. We will first see here the future hope that we're shown in that we're going to be seeing things about us that are not true now, but that will be when he is finished with us. Now, the fact that we don't have them yet can be a little confusing here, if we're not careful, because there is a way in which we have each of these things. Let me just run down for you what we're about to be told, what's about to be held out to us here in these verses as God's children. And ask yourself, do I have these things now in any way? First, he's going to tell us that we will be in that day ready for God. Ready for him. Is there no sense in which I'm ready for God now? I'm bought by the blood of Christ now, aren't I? I'm clothed in his righteousness 
now. There is a readiness that I have in a certain sense now. But we're going to see there's a readiness that he's describing that we don't yet have, that he's going to hold out to us. We're also going to be offered a presence with God, dwelling with him in his presence. Even though Ephesians 2 tells us that we have been raised with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places. And that we are temples of God because we are the dwelling place of the Spirit. There is a real sense in which we enjoy a presence with God now, today. We're going to be offered peace in these verses. Even though Romans 5, 1 tells us that having been justified by faith, what do we have? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to be offered satisfaction here. We're going to be promised and shown a future victory in these verses. In spite of the fact that 1 John 5, 4 tells us this is the victory that has overcome the world, even your faith. I hope it's helpful just on the front end for us to have acknowledged those things. There are real ways in which we enjoy all of these blessings. But he is going to be showing us a form of them that we, are, we have never experienced yet. That gives us a great deal to look forward to. So let's look at these. First, what we are offered is the promise that on that day we will be ready. Look at verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And stop there. Now you might notice that we're continuing the emphasis on renewal. We had a new heaven and a new earth in verse 1. Now we have a new Jerusalem in verse 2. And it's described as being prepared, it says. Being prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That helps us to know what he's talking about. Now that he's brought in this image of, of bride and wedding it's much clearer to us that what he's showing us here are the redeemed saints of God. The bride is the people of God. The saints. We're fairly used to that analogy, I think. Uh, You may remember Ephesians 5 drawing that comparison between marriage and the relationship between Christ and his church. But it's also made clear in the context of what John has already said. Look back with me for a moment at Revelation 19. And I'll read verses 7 and 8. Nineteen, beginning in verse 7, says this, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Now that's interesting. And it's that last part that we especially need to notice and think about for for just a moment here. What does it say is the adornment that this bride is being adorned with, decorated with? What's the adornment with which she has prepared herself? That's another way that it puts it there. Well, John says it's what he calls the dikaiomata. It's the righteous actions, the righteous deeds of the saints. That word is used in the same way, just a few pages back in Revelation 15, verses 3 and 4. There's a song being sung here. Verse 3 says, They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, 
saying, and notice what's being emphasized. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. And then he says this, All nations will come and worship you for, here's the word, for your righteous acts have been revealed. These righteous acts are the things that God has done that has put him on display and people have seen them and are glorifying God because of them. His righteous deeds. And in Revelation 19, these righteous deeds of the saints adorn the bride of Christ. Now notice how they're spoken of in each of these places. If you're still in chapter 19, Revelation 19, look again at verse 8. Do you see that you've got here both a picture of divine sovereignty and human responsibility, human actions affirmed here? Verse 8 said this, It was granted her. There's divine activity and sovereignty over the situation, right? It was granted her to clothe herself. There's human activity going on with fine linen. That sounds a lot like Ephesians 2.10 when it told us, uh, when Paul wrote that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. Both are seen there. And so we have them both emphasized in Revelation 19. But now come back to our passage this morning, chapter 21. That's not the case in Revelation 21. Two. And in verse 2 here, the emphasis is placed in one, in one location only, and that is God's role in our preparation and adornment. You see in verse 2 there that we are told the bride is prepared, not preparing herself. Greg Beale, in his commentary on this passage, says this. He says, throughout Revelation, the verb make ready or prepare refers to God's actions, not human actions. To be made ready as a bride adorned for her husband conveys the thought of God's preparation of his people for himself. So, here's what we're seeing so far here. Throughout history, God is adorning his bride, the church, in this way. As he so works in them and sanctifies them individually even, Growing their faith. He so does this in our lives that our faith breaks out into what are called righteous deeds. And now we're seeing that those deeds act like makeup and jewelry and frills or whatever. I don't know the words for with the wedding gown, but whatever you call those things, that's what these righteous deeds serve to accomplish. And on this day, that... <clears throat> On this day, that bride will stand there with the preparations finished, the adornment complete. And it is, uh, brothers and sisters, it's in that sense that you are not ready yet. We are not ready. Not like this. Here's how we could say it as well. Your metaphorical wedding gown is not yet complete. Because the wedding gown of the bride of Christ, which is the church corporate, is not yet complete. And men, I'm sorry if that analogy makes you uncomfortable. If you're thinking about your wedding gown, 
But if the women among us have to think through the metaphor of being inheritors, sons of God, and not daughters in that metaphorical sense, then we have to think our way through this one, being part of the bride of Christ. We know what we're doing here. We can follow the metaphor. The gown isn't yet complete. And so in the sense of how that affects you individually, I mean, we're talking about corporate realities there, but the body is made up of its members. And so in the sense that that reaches you individually, I can say to you that your gown is not yet complete. We can say that definitively because you're not dead yet. Until the day that we die, Christ is putting his glory on display by leading us to righteous deeds to walk in. And they will make Christ's wedding day all the more beautiful. Every one of them will serve that purpose. Because everyone will see the beautiful decorations and give God the glory as the one who has so beautifully prepared Jesus' bride for him. That's what's going to happen on that day. I was thinking about that and it just made me wonder to what extent that might put a new face for me on the picture that we see in places like James and Jude that talk about sinful deeds as stains. I mean, that's interesting to bring that picture in. Now, we got to be careful, and we want to make no mistake. Uh, on that final day, our clothes as the redeemed will be what color? White, completely white, right? Uh, by the blood of Jesus. Nothing else can do such a thing. But we're talking in imagery words here, and imagery like that, that those two authors feel the comfort to bring, do help us in shaping our, our understanding of what we're here for. What is the purpose that I exist for? My purpose is to bring glory to my Lord. That's why I'm here. And this is why as Christians, while we certainly have no despair in our hearts as we see indwelling sin continue with us, we do have a very godly discontentment with it as we see it. My purpose is to decorate the gown. I keep seeing these stains. We are not satisfied with the imperfections that remain. But see, that's what's so beautiful about verse 2. God says to his children here, there is coming a day when you will stand. <clears throat> when you will stand with your brothers and sisters in Christ, prepared Present, excuse me, perfect tense participle. Not in process, but job done. Job done. And here's what job done means. I mean, just imagine this. All the good works that Ephesians 2 speaks of, that God has prepared beforehand that his people would walk in, on that day, every single one of them that he planned before he began to create will have been completed on that day and beyond display. There will be no good works that God imagined for his people to do that will have been undone. That is unbelievable to imagine. And if you still draw breath, then that means that there's more that God has planned to bring from your life to serve as decoration on that wedding day. Not a single day in the life of a single saint is ever without eternal value in this way. And as we'll see even further on in our passage, 
Uh, so many of those moments will come to you in times that are never seen by another individual in this life. And yet will they shine on that day. So that's what's held out to us first here, is that we will be on that day presented ready before the Lord. Secondly, what's held out to us is that we will be with God. Look again at verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Covenantal formula given here, as it will be again further down in our passage. You may know that throughout the history of God's people, the way that the presence of the Holy God dwelt among sinful men was in a tabernacle or a temple. You couldn't just be in the presence of God. His, his presence had walls around it because of our sin. You had to go to the temple to come near to God's presence. Well, the word for tabernacle is the word skene. We see that word in a really interesting place in the New Testament. John chapter 1, that word comes up as it speaks of the coming of Jesus. It says in verse 14 that the word of God became flesh, and what it did is it tabernacled among us. Jesus coming to this earth, we have a walking tabernacle. If you are near to Jesus, you are near to the presence of God. He really is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And now, even we as believers, because of what Christ has done, are spoken of as temples, aren't we? And even as living stones being built together into a holy temple. We know this because God has given the Holy Spirit to dwell with us. But do you remember that Ephesians 1.14 calls the gift of the Spirit that we're experiencing now a down payment on our inheritance? It says he was given to us as a down payment on our inheritance. What does that imply? It certainly implies, at least, that there is more to come doesn't it? Not more of the Spirit. The Spirit is not water that you can pour half a cup of. He's a person. We don't wait for more of Him like that. But there is a presence with God that we enjoy now that is not like the presence of God that will come on the day that's being held out to us here in this passage. Here is God's people are presented to Christ as his bride. Do you see the loud voice calling out from heaven? Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Let me go again to Beale's commentary, and I couldn't put this better, and I thought this was helpful. He says here, This reflects the prophetic promise of Ezekiel 43, 7, that in the days of the new temple, God will tabernacle among the sons of Israel forever. Paul in 2 Corinthians 6.16 teaches that the tabernacle is already present in preliminary form in the church. But John here sees its completed fulfillment in the new creation. When this heaven and this earth pass away and God brings the new heaven and earth as a holy city coming down from heaven, we will enjoy the presence of God in a way that we have never yet experienced. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 puts it this way, that when we are brought to be with Christ, it says, so we will always be with the Lord. And this is why further down in our chapter, verse 22 of Revelation 21, says, 
I saw no temple in this city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. What a beautiful picture that's held out to us here of presence with God, unending, and in a way that we have not yet experienced. Third thing that's held out to us here is that we will have peace. Maybe the most read verse in this chapter is verse 4, and for very good reason, because of the hope that it brings to us. Verse 4 said, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. This may be the easiest of these to tell. He's talking about something we don't yet experience, isn't he? Our experience is nothing like what he's holding out to us here. He is promising to us a peace unlike the form of peace that we enjoy now. It brings a couple of New Testament ideas to mind. Do you remember John 16, 33, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he said this. He said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. You remember when he told them that. He promises us now peace in him, and we have it. The peace that he promises us is the peace that he describes there. It will be a peace we experience and that holds on to us as we endure the inevitable tribulations of this world. But see, in Revelation 21, this world has passed away. Philippians 4.7 told us to bring our requests to God in this life, and it said that when we do so, the peace of God, which transcends understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What does God's peace do for us now? It guards our hearts and our minds. It doesn't, however, remove the sources of pain and doubt and trial and grief. Not in this life. It guards us. It guards our joy and our faith as we endure and walk through what he calls us to. It sustains us. But my friends, in the day of the new heaven and earth, what will the peace of God do? It won't just guard our hearts. It will remove every source of grief and mourning, every source of pain and fear. He says, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There's a real connection in this verse and in verse 1. Uh, that can be helpful to us. You remember the removal of the sea in verse 1, uh, the removal of all sources of chaos and evil. Uh, those things are no more. That's what he's talking about here uh, when he speaks of the wiping away of our tears. There is no necessarily, there is no promise here that we will never again weep tears of joy, for example. There's no guarantee here that the tear ducts are removed in the glorification process. I've looked at this verse before and thought, maybe this means that the Johnson curse I live under of extremely overactive tear ducts will be removed on that day, but I think I don't get that promise. Maybe yours will be overactive and you'll know what it's like finally. You'll be able to experience it with me, but it'll be, it'll be good. We'll all be the same, so we'll be. Um, it's not necessarily a wiping away of good tears, right? The wiping away of these tears is the permanent removal from us of these things that he describes. It goes without saying that we'll be experiencing that for the first time. One more thing I want to point out before we move on from verse 4. Do you see that it calls those things, 
that he's just listed out. It, it calls them the former things. The former things have passed away. That word is exactly the same word that we see in verse 1. It's the first. These are the first things. And I don't know about you, but to me that's worth remembering because that list in verse 4, when those things come, they seem to come in waves that sometimes feel like they're going to swallow our entire lives. We have to remember that for those who have been born again and know the Lord Jesus, and this isn't the only promise we have, we're promised that these experiences that lead to tears and death and mourning and crying, we're promised that the Lord is using them for our good in this life. We hold on to that. But what do we have here? Here we're told that they're simply the first things that he has in store for us. There's coming a day when we, the Lord will look at us and he will say, okay, the first things are done. Time for the second things. Verse 5 tells us that that is an absolute certainty. It's as certain as the trustworthiness of God himself. He who was seated on the throne, verse 5, said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Now given the way that this is phrased, it's very likely that it's, that's actually the angelic messenger breaking in and saying, Hey, John, write these things down, because they are trustworthy and true. There's a back and forth that seems to make that clear. It doesn't make a huge difference, but it's good to have a mental image of what's happening here to John. What's being emphasized is the absolute trustworthiness of God to do these things that he's promising to do. And that emphasis even goes on into verse 6. Do you see there? The words of certainty. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. First and last letter of the alphabet, Alpha, Omega. Beale says, along with the similar expressions, the first and last, and the beginning and the end, these titles describe God's complete control over history, especially as he brings, to, brings it to an end in salvation and judgment. What we plan to do here moving into next week will be to, one, continue the passage and see all of verses 1 to 8. Uh, but in particular, what we're going to do is begin to see how this gives us a comparison between the offers and solutions that this world is holding out to us and those that God is giving to us here in our text. But even before we finish verses 1 to 8, already now we can stop and draw some conclusions from our text this morning. Well, we need to always be asking, right? What is God's intention in giving us what we have just experienced, in, in giving us what we have just read and considered? What we have here from our Lord is a mixture of encouragement and instruction. It's clearly an encouragement to weary believers. Leon Morris writes about this as he was talking about the original Christian audience. So weary were they. And it applies to us as well in our time. He said, the troubled Christians, uh, to troubled Christians, the future seemed problematic. The firm word of God reassures them. He is in command, and in the end, all things work out just as he wills. That's pretty obvious from these statements that we have read. 
And that's a tremendous encouragement to us. And let's just remind ourselves of that this morning, that our God is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the trustworthy and true one. And his declaration that he is making all things new is trustworthy and true. It's true today. Never mind what appearances would suggest. It's true today. We read in 1 John 2.17 that the world is passing away along with its desires. And so we have all the reason in the world to endure joyfully today. So it's an encouragement to us, but it is not a vague encouragement or even a general one. It's an encouragement to us to move in a specific direction. He is instructing our thinking and our expectations here. If you just ask our passage the question, uh, Revelation 21, what is the solution to the world's problems? Well, what does it show us here? There comes a day when the sea passes away. When does that happen? It happens when God's presence dwells with man. That's when it happens. What does the Bible teach us to expect outside of God's presence? Two mental ideas come to mind. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is what is expected outside of the presence of God. When the dwelling of God is with man, then are the tears wiped away. So what's the solution to the separation between God and sinful man? We know the answer, and there is only one. The answer is the cross. The true message of hope and restoration and peace is the message of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is expected that that's not the message that our world would come up with. But when the church begins to respond to matters of crisis with some other answer, something is wrong indeed. And my friends, we're living our lives right now swimming in a sea of false narratives and false assumptions and worldly answers. But as we said at the beginning, although we live in this world, we are not of this world. And we do well to remember the warnings that Christ gave us in John 15, 19, when he said, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. We are not a people with an identity crisis. We are the people of the book. And though the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, to we who are being saved, it is the power of God. Would you pray with me? Father, we... What can we say to such things? We thank you for the pictures that you have brought back to our minds this morning. We thank you for the way that you use our gathering together. The corporate gathering that you call us to, even as Bobby made so clear this morning. We thank you, Lord, that your intentions for us in, as we walk in your plans and your commands are so kind and generous. Thank you for the hope and for the instruction that you have given us out of this passage. And I pray, Lord, for us as a, as a body, as a local church family, Lord, that you would guard us and keep us in your ways to think your thoughts after you. We pray that for our brothers and sisters across our country and across the whole world. 
the very same, that they would be a people who are known by their fidelity to Scripture and whose minds have been thoroughly shaped by a biblical understanding of these things. We thank you for the cross. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.